Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am with First Mark Capital's Rick Heitzman. Rick, how the heck are you? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. You can tell I'm all fired up. We have a market. We're recording this Tuesday. It's right before noon. The S&P is down 2%. The NASDAQ is down 3%. The NASDAQ is approaching down 20% on the year. The S&P is down about 11.5% on the year. So there's a lot of funky things going on in the stock market. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the macro environment. I really would love to hear some of the sorts of calls that you are fielding from some of the founders of the companies that you are on boards of that you mentor and one of the main things is I think a lot of our listeners know you started in this business during the dot-com inflation of that bubble and then the subsequent deflation. And you've always had a close eye on public markets. You've given our listeners also a good sense of what you think the lag can be on valuations from public to private markets. So definitely want to hit that. And then also we're going to hit this saga with Elon Musk, Twitter, and Tesla. I know you got some hot takes. I got some thoughts on that. But let's get into it, man. When the market's down like this, without any real news, we know that the Fed has their meeting next week and Fed fund futures are pricing in a 50 basis point hike. This would be the first 50 basis point hike from the Fed. You ready for this? Since May of 2000, that is a month or two after the NASDAQ topped out in that dot-com top there. Curious your thoughts right here, because I think it's kind of interesting to bookend these two things. And we'll talk about the macro a little bit, but the markets are messy right now, no doubt about it. And I'm curious what this Fed hike means to you at a time where markets going lower, inflation readings are still really hot, and the level of uncertainty on the supply chain front, on the inflation front, on the geopolitical front has never been hotter. I completely agree. There's so many things going on out there in the world politically, geopolitically. Fortunately, there's a little bit more stability given the French elections on Sunday, but you're still seeing a lot of moving parts and you're seeing the end of COVID and what does that mean both economically as well as socially. And there's just so many cross currents. I'm hoping the Fed doesn't overreact. When you look back, it's amazing that I was in a similar chair 20, approaching 22 years ago as the at least the Nasdaq started to melt down and the tech sector started to melt down in early 2000 and the Fed started raising rates. It was probably the worst thing that could have happened because it provided instability in a market that needed stability. When you're unsure how much of the market instability is geopolitical versus inflation versus everything else, why add more instability? The Fed should be there to be a ballast in the economy and not to create more stability. 
you say that, but the Fed's dual mandate is stable prices and full employment. They have full employment. What they don't have right now are stable prices. The irony is that pre-pandemic, the Fed was desperate to get inflation above 2%, at least the way that they read it. Right now, you know that we had that last CPI reading of 8.5%. Now, maybe we've hit peak inflation, but the issue here is if they don't act, then the idea that we have double-digit inflation readings, that would just screw up every model that they have because then we're in for the stagflationary environment. One of the things that is almost a certainty from the shooting war that we have in Europe is that Europe will go into a recession. So then the question is, how much further after the U.S.? If you have slower growth, and higher prices, let me tell you something. That's what I think is going on in the stock market right now. That's why you're seeing this value compression, especially in unprofitable names, the names that need to rely on borrowing a great deal more. And so again, to quote the dude, it's a very complicated case, Maud. There's a lot of ins, a lot of outs, and a lot of what have you. But what sort of questions are you fielding right now? And I know a lot of the guys and gals that you work closely with, and you're on some boards, and you mentor a lot of young founders. This must be confounding for them because you and I are trying to make some sense of it right here. And we've been through these cycles and these guys are trying to operate businesses throughout this. So just curious to hear what level of panic does a NASDAQ down 20% put into like private tech founders? We've talked about before, I think I started to talk about it last summer, that the market felt overheated. We're overdue for a correction. The public markets were well, maybe are going to start to correct in Q4, but it would take a while for that to hit the private markets. So the public markets started to correct Q4. You mentioned in the start, usually takes six to nine months post that for the private markets to correct. And guess where we are now? We're six to nine months post. You're starting to see anxiety really ramp in the private markets. Q1, the later stage private markets were essentially closed. One of the other attributes, which is important to having funds flow is having an IPO window open. As we've talked about on previous shows, this is the third longest time the IPO window has been shut this century after that early aughts tech meltdown and then the global financial crisis. So the liquidity window is shut. The cost of capital is increasing with interest rates and the uncertainty is off the charts, giving everything from the Ukraine to COVID. So people have just said, hey, I'm going pencils down. And I would say talking to the top 15 growth investors of 2021, and those could be long only funds, crossover funds, later stage private guys, a lot of them said, hey, I'm going pencils down. Do I really understand what's going on here? Do I really understand what my liquidity window is? Do I really understand where's the valuation reset? And if you talk to a lot of smart people, they're all over the board from is this March 09, which would be the best case scenario, to, hey, this is the day after Lehman fell. I spent a lot of time looking at public markets and talking about them. It seems like incessantly. I'm sure you guys are all sick of my freaking voice by now. And your level of expertise and what you're gleaning from the private markets, both operators and both other investors, your peers, I think is really interesting because we can probably meet in the middle somewhere. My quick take, Rick, is that what's going on right now is a mixture of what happened in the post-dot-com era and then the financial crisis in a way, because the financial crisis was not a black swan. The dot-com implosion was not a black swan. But what the Fed did with this pandemic is that they kind of hit it hard. They flooded the zone with both monetary and then Congress with fiscal stimulus, and then they kept going. And what was very apparent to me, and you said, and I know you started coming on on the tape last summer. And 
and talking about this overheating. Well, we were seeing that in the public markets, but we already saw large pockets in the public markets starting to correct. What did we see? We saw recent unprofitable tech IPOs. We saw SPACs. We saw crypto. We saw NFTs. We saw them all starting to correct, and that's been going on. So what worries me right now is that the mega cap tech names, the concentrated names have just joined the party. And then we have, if you look outside of tech, why is it that the bank stocks act so poorly? JP Morgan's down 25% from its all-time highs from the fall. That's not good. And we see the only things that are working in the stock market this year are energy, materials, consumer staples, and commodities, right? That makes me nervous. So as far as the stock market's concerned, nothing that worked over the last two years is working any longer. And the stuff that they're crowding in doesn't make up enough of the major indices to keep things afloat here. So that's what worries me a little bit. Especially things like JP Morgan and the financials, which historically were inversely correlated to tech, all moving down at the same time. If I wanted to put my optimist hat on, though, I could say, if JP Morgan's down 25%, if the fangs are down significantly, obviously led by Netflix, is this the final elements of the correction? Is this the, they came for the small caps, then the mid caps, now the large caps. Now, once the large caps capitulate, it's often this time where you say, okay, now everybody's capitulated. Here's a new baseline. Are we in March 09? So let me tell you what's different this time. March 09, the Fed had interest rates at zero. They had quantitative easing that they were going to iterate on multiple, multiple different times. The difference now is, again, going back to the Fed is raising rates 50 basis points. It's the first 50 basis point hike, like I just said, since May of 2000. They need to continue to do this because, again, if they don't cool down the economy, here's the disconnect between the stock market and the economy, then they're going to be in a real problem. Now, a lot of much smarter market minds than myself think the Fed is basically trying to put the economy in a recession for all intents and purposes. And again, stagflation. What does it mean for valuations? Not good here. So it's a really tough one. One of the best performing groups in tech last year were semiconductors. They're one of the hardest hit groups right now. If you look at the ETF that tracks the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, it's down 23% on the year. The major components of that are NVIDIA, which is down 32% on the year. AMD, large component, down 37% on the year. Taiwan Semi can't get out of its own way for a whole host of reasons here, down 20%. So there's just a lot of really parts of cyclical tech that aren't great. There's all those parts that people thought were recession-proof, the recurring revenue new SaaS models. They're absolutely getting destroyed. So where do you go in tech right now in the public markets? Because unless Elon's got a bid for your company, there are no premiums to be had here, bud. No, there's no premiums to be had. There's not a lot of buyers. You're seeing people leave the market thinking about, are there, imagine this, dividend yielding names, which could provide real income with stocks that at least have a higher downside because they're generating earnings. They don't have any financing risk. Is that the place where people are going to start bleeding a little bit out of tech into other sectors? We started to see that as you talked about consumer staples, but is that going to be a trend that will be a slow bleed over a period of years as interest rates rise? I guess the one thing I would say that was really consistent about 
2000 to the lows in 2002 and then the highs in 2007 to the lows in 2009 is time. So we had this really short bear market in 2020 and we know why we came out of it. The difference, why you can't buy the dip right here all in and just make a call, you'd have to be making a call that the Fed's going to pivot. If the Fed pivots from super hawkish to super dovish, that's because they overcompensated and they hit the economy too hard and now they have to be really accommodative because the economy's slowing. And that's not a great scenario for stocks. After the 50 basis points, where I think it's priced in, everyone's expecting it. Take a second and figure out now what's going to happen post-pandemic. Get a couple more quarters of data or get a couple more months at least of data before they figure out what's next. All right. Before we get to big tech earnings, Rick, what are you telling some of the CEOs that you're either on the board of or mentoring of or invested in? Two questions when anything ever happens. What does this mean and what does this mean to me? You go around boardrooms, around the tables, even companies that raised a lot of money, maybe even fully financed for saying, hey, what does this mean to me? Cost of capital just went up a lot. And we managed to, in a lot of cases, build a fortress balance sheet. So you're not exposed, but therefore, what do we do? So there's probably three things that those companies are doing that's super important. A, they're taking a look at, are we spending our money correctly? So if nothing else, just as the cost of your capital has increased, whether or not it's in the bank or not, are you really focusing on the right projects and prioritizing well? And that means both in terms of a project basis as well as human capital. Then they're thinking about even if you have enough cash, as the market's focusing more on unit economics, business model, and profitability, are we driving in that right direction, especially if you're thinking about a 22, 23, or 24 IPO? Are you driving in that direction where you have great unit economics in your business, you're going to be profitable, and you're self-sufficient? And then the other thing is, those being more defensive postures, offensively, can you be a consolidator? There are going to be companies which don't have access to capital, which might not have hit their milestones, which might have timed the market poorly. If you have cash, cash is the best competitive advantage in down markets. Can you be a consolidator? Can you be aggressive? Can you help build your competitive advantage by buying other companies? And a lot of our companies are saying, once you get those first two things down and you know you don't have to play defense, you can start playing offense, here's how we build great big companies for the next time the IPO window opens. So some strategic M&A, you think, in the private markets. That's a pretty decent segue to this thing. I don't know if you and I have talked about it much, but Elon Musk bid for Twitter. The Twitter board agreed to sell for close to $44 billion. It sounds like they didn't have too many other options to do that. I found this thing pretty curious overall. There's some rumblings that maybe Jack Dorsey, the founder of the company, was recently pushed out, maybe helped orchestrate all of this. That's a great conspiracy theory. Kara Swisher tweeted this last night, a meme of the Ocean's Eleven, the original Ocean's Eleven, to Jack's gibberish that he put out on Twitter about something about state of consciousness or returning something to this. It sounded like something out of a sci-fi thing that he and Elon are in cahoots here. I mean, I find it all at this point a little much. What's your quick take here? Because Elon, who's obviously tackling some huge issues as it relates to the electric grid and EVs and reusable rockets and all that sort of stuff, this just doesn't seem like one of those existential issues that he's focused on here. The idea that somehow he's been harmed or his 83 million followers on Twitter have been harmed, that he's been silenced in some way, because there's only been a handful of organizations or individuals that I know have been silenced. And usually that has to do with disinformation or hate speech or stuff that I don't know should be in the town square. 
I completely agree. So I think Elon, though, we've talked about in prior episodes. So he's the greatest entrepreneur of this century. He's the richest man in the world. Where do you go from there? It's just relevance, right? He doesn't need any more money. Amazingly, the amount of money he's spending on Twitter is irrelevant to him. But relevancy matters. How do I stay in the middle of the conversation? He was nonstop, back-to-back, every single news show, every single financial news show over the last two weeks and will continue to be part of the conversation. And relevancy is the most precious commodity for people who have already been fully actualized in their career as an amazing entrepreneur and then obviously financially. So I think that was his take. I think he did a great job in putting the Twitter board in a box that he could have pulled out whenever he wanted. And won. He was going to win in all scenarios. He was either going to get the company or he was going to say, this incompetent board screwed it up. I was going to buy the company, but they couldn't get out of their own way. And he could have walked and made everyone look silly. So he strategically played it well. And I think that there's a lot of people standing to back him. I know there's been a lot of ink spilled over, does he have backing? What banks would possibly back him? What equity sponsors would back him? The word on the street is there's a lot. This is really important, okay? This is a business that has basically sucked for years, okay? It went public nine years ago at $27. He's buying it for 54. You can do the math on that. I think it's up 100%. And just so you know, before his bid, the stock at its lows in January, it looked like it was headed back to that 27 IPO price. The company monetizes worse than all their big competitors. The user base is not growing. If he's going to fix basically the bot problem, I don't think that helps growth. I don't think it helps my monetization. Obviously, they're going to get smaller before they get bigger. He might have some ideas on subscription and some other ideas, but this is not a great business. And he said that he didn't care about the financials. So then why are all the banks lining up? Okay, I get it. It's debt. And they think he's a good credit. Is that it? It's just that he's a good credit? Because let me tell you another thing. All of his money is tied up in Tesla. And as we're talking right now, Tesla's at $900. You know where it was yesterday? It was at $1,000. It was a trillion dollar market cap. So basically... $100 billion has been just lobbed off the value of his Tesla holdings or the entire market cap. You can do the math on his holdings of north of 27%. I just think there's risk there that no one's really paying attention to. The guy has also had massive margin calls over the last few years or so. So if this stock were to do what Facebook did, get cut in half from September to where it is right now, He's got some problems here, and Tesla shareholders should be worried because when you put up your stock for margin, if you have a margin call, well, the banks sell the stock. And if they do that, you might have a cascading effect, which would put a lot of Tesla shareholders in a bad position for no reason fundamental to the company that he is the CEO. I think that's true. I don't think it'll come to pass. I don't know if you're the CEO of Tesla, a trillion dollar company, you're the CEO of SpaceX, which is a multi-hundred million dollar company, not boring companies, a several billion dollar company. Twitter at least is a several billion dollar company. Who's the bank that's going to cross him? So although he's had margin calls in the past, I think he has plenty of liquidity and I think it's going to be hard for any bank to cross him. The same reason that he's able to pull together the financing for this deal because everyone wants to be in business with the greatest entrepreneur of the century. Stick around. When Rick and I come back, we are going to preview big cap tech earnings that we get this week of the FMAGA complex. You know them, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. So stick around. 
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Let's talk a little bit about tech earnings here, Rick. For you, kind of straddling both public and private markets, how closely are you going to watch Tuesday? So by the time the listener is listening to this pod, Microsoft and Alphabet will have already reported. We know that Microsoft is the second largest company in market cap terms behind Apple. This is a really important one if you think about it, because this is a valuation that got kind of heady for them. They obviously have mid-teens earnings and sales growth expectations here, trading at a pretty fat multiple relative to its history, 26, 27 times. If Microsoft were to disappoint and the stock is already down 16.5% of the year, that might really set a nasty tone because one of the views that I have given all the headwinds we talked about to the economy is that S&P earnings have really not been corrected appropriately by strategists and they still seem way too high, about 8, 8.5% in 2022. I think if anything, you're going to have maybe low single digits, mid single digits growth. And then the multiple on the entire market is probably too high. And then a handful of names like Microsoft are going to stick out like a sore thumb. Just curious what your take is on some of these big names, because later on the week, we're going to have Amazon, Apple, and Meta, which is the Facebook, is this going to be a week that will be long remembered in the market, Rick? I don't think it'll be long remembered in the market. I do agree with you that earnings might not be as favorable as you think. And there's still, as, as we talk about Q1, remnants of Omicron. There's been so much stuff that's gone on in the world in the last 90 days that people forget. COVID was back and raging in the beginning of the first quarter. You're going to see a lot of those elements pop up. I'm probably less interested in Microsoft. Is there an enterprise brand somewhat reliant on enterprise growth, which has been choppy for all the reasons we've talked about? I'm much more interested in Meta, Apple, and Amazon, which are reflections of consumer confidence and even premium consumer confidence with Apple being an accessible luxury to a certain extent, the other names being that also. So what's going to happen there? And then obviously with a lot of companies in the media and advertising landscape, what's Meta going to say about user growth and monetization in a more privacy-driven world? I think it could be a tough week for the media and advertising stocks. As we're speaking, Meta is making a new 52-week low. It's down 44 percent on the year. And I think really what's important, you know, I had Dan Benton. I know you know Dan. He was Andor Capital founder for years. He ran that from 01 to 2016. And prior to that, he was with Pequot and uh, very successful or very prominent tech analyst in the 80s and early 90s. And he and I were discussing the tech landscape a little bit yesterday on, on the tape. And I got to tell you, when I think about the fact that Facebook 
was trading at an all-time high on September 1st, 2021, and since then has been cut in half. And there wasn't a single analyst on the street who rated the stock anything but a buy. There weren't many holders who didn't think that the company was really very cheap relative to many of its peers. And here we are. It's lost a half a trillion dollars in market cap. And that's one of the things why I've just had a real bug up my ass about Microsoft, Apple, Google in particular, because the crowding in those three names has really presented, I think, a lot of risk for the broad market. Because if one of those or two of those were to have a material guide down for the balance of the year, then we're kind of in a box here, man. There's no coming out. There's no buying the dip because time is going to be the thing, I think, that helps work us out of that because you just said it. If Microsoft, and we already know that there's been lots of trepidation about PC demand. Which one are you most scared about? If you had to say one of these folks will create systematic market risk, who are you most scared about? Apple and Microsoft, most definitely. And for the reasons I was going to say is that Apple, given their exposure overseas, given the strength of the dollar, given their reliance on the supply chain, given the fact that massive parts of China are locked down. So not just from a production standpoint, not just from the ability to access parts in labor, but also from a demand standpoint. And so that to me is a big one. I think that is a company that Expected growth is in line with the S&P right now for 2022, and it trades at six or seven turns over the S&P. That's just a matter of crowding. That makes me nervous, okay? It's 7% of the S&P 500, and it's 13% of the NASDAQ 100. And so that would be a huge read on all those macro issues, but then also, like you said, on consumer demand. And you've made a great point on the pod on many occasions that it looks more like a staple these days than it does a luxury purchase. Then you think of the recurring revenue with a lot of their services. I get that, but it's still a big read on the consumer. And then Microsoft, again... Lots of talk about the server and PC demand, the pull forward, that sort of thing. If they were to guide down and giving the recurring nature of their business model now, if we were to have a real disappointment, that thing's going lower. That thing's going to like 250. Apple's probably going to 140. So maybe another 10% for each of them. If they each go down like that over the next few weeks, the S&P's going lower. And then I guess the point is, how does the market recover? It needs the generals. And if the Fed doesn't have a pivot for the right reasons, I think it's time that makes it kind of work itself out. And so I think returns are shot for 2022 in the stock market. There might be some great trading opportunities in some of these names that are down 60 70%, much smaller names. But I think from an investment standpoint, you better think about dollar cost averaging those names that have those huge moats, those huge balance sheets, the great managements, and will come back, but they just might not come back right away. You're going back to where we started probably six months ago. Where are the babies that got thrown out with the bathwater that people were saying, hey, this is all these companies, and whether it's consumer tech or whether it's SaaS, all these companies are overvalued. I'm getting out of all of them where not all these companies are the same. Management's different. Moats are different. Scale's different. Industry and total addressable market's different. And whether you're in the public markets or whether you're like us in the private markets, we're spending a lot of time finding those babies that got thrown out with the bathwater. I think about some of the devastation that recently hundreds and hundreds of companies that come to the public markets over the last couple of years. And to your point that there's some tremendous values, there's some great companies, there's some great management, some great opportunity as far as 
some unusual values that are just depressed because there's no demand for, let's say, they're unprofitable. So then maybe they came to the public markets too quickly. If you're able to identify a portfolio of those companies and sit out, and I think you've said this before, and take a longer term horizon, there's going to be some great opportunities. They're almost like if you're in the public markets, access to VC at this point, right? Because a lot of individuals don't have that. And that's part of even a lot of the crossover guys are saying, why participate in the private markets when everything in the public markets are on sale and I'm getting a discount at a company at a billion dollar valuation where in the private markets, this might be a billion and a half dollars and I have full liquidity. You have the Qs and the twos and you can start the babies with the bathwater ETF as well. Let's do that, man. Why don't we get in the ETF business? I think Q's and twos, baby bathwater. I really do like that idea of baby with the bathwater. I know that you looked at a ton of companies. You just despacked here and you looked at probably dozens and dozens, I suspect. Hundreds. Hundreds. Okay. And you probably saw then dozens and dozens of companies that you'd love to own with that capital. But for whatever reason, you arrived at the one you did. Are there going to be distressed funds for equities that pop up in the next year if this year is as bad as I think it's going to be? They're already starting to see pivots and semi-pivots in the crossover later stage and public funds where they've said, hey, this is what we're waiting for. We believe in there's a digital transformation of a lot of things going on in the economy. What we didn't believe in 20 and 21 were the values. And now the values have retrenched and people have left the market. I have a good friend at a fund who's saying, this is great. Everybody who was spending like drunken sailors in 2021 is out of the market. Multiples are down 70%. And I have the time to do my diligence. Everybody's left. This is great. I'm going to be greedy when everybody's scared because I was scared when everyone was greedy last year. And I think you're beginning to see those opportunities arise. And we're super excited about a lot of them. All right, let's talk about some names in the stock market that some of our viewers might be interested in. So that Twitter deal about seven times sales at a $44 billion takeout price, what does that mean for Snap? Snap trades at a higher price to sales, a higher PE. On a gap basis, they're still losing money, but they're growing their sales at a higher rate and they're monetizing better. And for some reason, it's kind of interesting with all this hubbub about all of these tech CEOs, founder-led companies, everything like that, Evan Spiegel, since his, I think, debut in the public markets, I think he laid an egg on his first earnings report and he was kind of defiant and somebody got him by the year. It was probably one of his board members got him by the year and said, Evan, you're doing this wrong here. He's really stayed out of trouble. And people think of him as a really solid leader, really solid product guy. But is the story of Twitter that a company like this that's doing five, six billion dollars in ad sales versus the behemoths, the Google, the Facebook, now the Amazon, can they compete on their own? And I'm just curious, is there strategic M&A out there? I think they're starting to. So there's probably three things you hit on there. Every reason that we were pissed about Twitter, no product innovation, no user tools, Evan has done the exact opposite. There's product innovation. They've continued to drive product. And the product is two-sided. It's user product as well as advertiser product. So they're getting better every day at that. And they've built out a great Snap ecosystem. And that's super important, which is why they're trading in a different multiple than Twitter. They've proven they could get better every day and they have good leadership. What does that mean in a world where for a long time, Google and Facebook had massive share and they were capturing more share all the time? Even if you have a couple billion dollar company like a Snap or like a Pinterest, are you just getting crowded out by the market? We've actually seen the opposite, especially in our companies, even D2C companies, 
who are massive buyers of the social platforms and digital media, they're saying the pricing on Google and Facebook has gotten so perfect, especially post iOS 14 and the privacy settings, you can't make money on the big platforms anymore. You need to be able to create ad formats that really work for certain demographics on Snap, on TikTok, on Pinterest. And that's where the real juice is. You don't want to go where everybody else is. You want to go where there's a mismatch of supply and demand. And the midsize next generation media companies are where you could drive real ROI as a direct-to-consumer business. All right, let's talk about another dog here. Let's talk about Netflix, which is down 65% of the year. There seems to be like no end in sight for this stock. I mean, this is really astounding. Rick, this stock in the fall was trading at $700. Now it's trading at $200. Got less than a $100 billion market cap. So let me ask you this. Why wouldn't Netflix, now they know that they have to go to this ad-supported model. Why wouldn't they look horizontally a little bit? We've been saying this for five years. I said this when Spotify was private. I know, but now is the time. Spotify is a $20 billion market cap company expected to do maybe $12 billion in sales versus Netflix, $32 billion in sales. They're growing faster, 20% a year. Netflix is only expected to grow sales 10% a year for the next few years. When you think about the margins, Netflix has higher margins. They could probably get Spotify margins up dramatically if you're going to cross-sell a lot of this stuff. And Spotify has an ad-based product offering. So why wouldn't we see Daniel X sell to Reed Hastings and then broaden out and then add some gaming, really go horizontal with this and have multiple touch points for ad supported products, but then also subscription bundles that might be more attractive also as they look to increase sales or users overseas. I've loved this since Spotify was a private company going into their direct listing. We were on CNBC several years ago. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think there's ad synergies. I think there's product synergies. And I think you create a differentiated bundle. The two things that came out of the Netflix horrific earnings for me were, hey, they have to come up with different product offerings of ad-supported and non-ad-supported. And they have to differentiate themselves against other streaming platforms. Without that awesome library that a Disney has, without a great library that HBO Max has, you can only have so many international crime thrillers that people could sit through when your kids want to sit there and watch a Marvel or Pixar movie for the hundredth time. So how do you differentiate your bundle? You're able to bundle Spotify. Then that's differentiating. If someone's sitting there saying, hey, do I cut HBO Max? Do I cut Disney? Do I cut Netflix or do I cut Peacock? That's really obvious because you have the Spotify bundle. The other thing you're hitting on on why the margin structure is slightly different from Spotify versus Netflix is originals. Originals give you that higher margin. Netflix has gotten into originals or spend a massive amount of money, I think $20 billion a year on originals. As we know, Spotify has gotten into originals by buying things like The Ringer, buying things like Gimlet Media. And if you could start being able to get some synergies around those originals, begin to have some original IP to build libraries around, that would be differentiated in the streaming market. I think it's a great idea. If they hated it in a bull market and they hate it in a bear market, I think someone's asleep at the switch at Netflix. And the last thing I'll just leave here is that this is the scar tissue that you and I both have from these past bear markets. 
in a bear market, I mean, some of the most loved stuff that overshot to the upside when things were really great, they overshot to the downside. And patience is really a big part of that. And if you remember what O2 was like with some of the most innovative tech companies of the time, they just kept on going lower and lower. And it was really hard to catch the bottom. And so to your point, you really have to be patient. You really have to risk management. You really have to have longer term time horizon because a stock that goes down 75% in five or six months can go down another 50%. It's just a fact. This stock was trading, I think, at the lows of the pandemic at 200. It's trading at 436 now, and it was trading at 1762 in mid-November. Nothing's ever as good as bad as you think. We're not trying to call the bottom here, but we're trying to find some names that we think might have been overshot and put babies with the bathwater. You take the longest few in the room and trust the process. I really appreciate it, Rick. From First Mark Capital, thanks, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks a lot. See you soon, Dan. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.